It would be a major understatement to say that the Bible paints a very grim picture of humanity apart from God. You know very well that Adam understood that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely he would surely die. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 confirms this. It says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the Bible goes on to complete this grisly portrait. And I want to begin by saying this, that the fall of man due to Adam has given us a new identity. Our, our identity, apart from grace, is that of a sinner. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And then as you think about this fundamental identity of who we are apart from grace, namely that we are sinners, look at the top and see that the Bible describes us in many different ways and many different facets. As sinners apart from grace, we are weak. The Bible says that we are ungodly. I want you to pay close attention to the next uh, description where the Bible calls sinners apart from grace enemies of God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We are under the wrath of God. We are slaves to sin. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are, as Paul says, following the prince of the power of the air. We are children of wrath. We are separated from Christ. We have no hope. We are in this world without God. Indeed, this is an absolutely grim portrait of humanity apart from grace. Aren't you glad to be in Christ? Amen. Aren't you glad to be numbered among those whom God has chosen that we'll talk more about here in a moment? But this is the stark reality of people who are living without grace. But in the face of this this very sobering reality, we are introduced to an even greater reality, and that is the astonishing reality that for those of us who believe, brace yourself, we are now friends of God. We are friends of God. It was in 1977 or 1978 when uh, it was the Christmas season, and as a, a seventh grader, the doorbell rang. It was early December, and I went to the door, and I opened it. It was in the evening. And there before me stood a very short Mexican man holding a Christmas tree. And he said to me words that I will not soon ever forget. And I will try my best to imitate him. He said, hello, I am your Christmas tree delivery boy. Well, standing before me, was one of my heroes, none other than Efren Herrera. How many of you remember Efren Herrera? So Efren Herrera was the, the great Seahawk kicker who showed up at my front door as my Christmas tree delivery boy. <laughs> my mouth hit the floor. And we invited Efren Herrera into our home, along with the, the friend from church who was already friends with him. And that day, Efren Herrera and I became friends. Well, through that association, I actually uh, called my friend at church and said, you think you could set uh, something up where Efren Herrera would come and be the speaker at our uh, junior high sports banquet? And I won't bore you with the details, but we ended up pulling that off. And so once we arranged this, this uh, monumental event, uh, I let all my buddies know at the junior high that my friend Efren Herrera was going to be the speaker at the junior high banquet. Well, any of you in high school or junior high know exactly how junior high or high school boys would react to that. Yeah, right. Yeah, Steely, you're gonna, your, your friend Efren Herrera is going to be at the junior high bank. Well, no, 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 you don't understand. He's my friend, and he, we invited him. He's going to come. I can remember just how I felt. It was just prior to 7 o'clock at that banquet, and Efren had not yet show, showed up. And all my buddies were ribbing me. Yeah, 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 it's going to be great when Efren Herrera shows up. 
Well, no, so- no sooner did my friends, whether they were chiding me and, and mocking me and chastising me, as Efren Herrera walked through those doors. You talk about vindication. Oh, it was wonderful. Wonderful. As they saw firsthand that this was my friend, Efren Herrera. Well, if you were to call Efren Herrera today and you were to mention my name, I can almost guarantee you he would not even remember my name. But for that day, he was my friend, and it meant a lot to me. When we talk about being friends of God, when we talk about being rightly associated to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are talking about the most intimate kind of friendship That is possible. God knows our names. He has seated us in the heavenlies if we are in Christ. He has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. He knows everything about you. And so with that framework, I want to move forward and say this, that in one word, the Bible shouts... In light of this reality, the Bible shouts that there has been a great reversal from hatred to healing, from futility to friendship. And it's the word but, B-U-T. The word but is a very, very small word. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it contains a very, very big message. It's a message that is a life-changing message. It's a a message that brings transformation. It is a message that is nothing short of revolutionary. Many of you have experienced it. It begins like this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. And he raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly realms in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is the greatest need of every sinner. Namely, to be utterly transformed by the grace of God through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to turn with me to our passage this morning to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and have you stand with me as we read these verses from verses 12, excuse me, verses 12 to 17. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in light of the reality of sinfulness, the sinfulness that each one of us is born with, the reality that we, apart from grace, are separated from your holy presence, the fact that we are uh, sinners lost without hope and without God. We thank you for the great reality of grace. We thank you that today, that because of Jesus, we are no longer under your wrath. We thank you that because of Jesus, we are seated in the heavenlies. We thank you that because of Jesus, we are forgiven of all our sins. Today we thank you for the gospel and want to explore the the contours of friendship with you, God, and ask that you would make uh, these words come alive in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would uh, shine the spotlight on this passage today so that we would be changed for the better, so that we may repent of our sin, so that we uh, may have a face-to-face encounter with you, the living God of the universe. God, I pray that our eyes would be open to see your word. Our hearts would grasp your truth all for your name's sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, this morning I want to speak to two very different kinds of people. Group number one is a group that the Bible says is trapped in sin. To put it very starkly, this group that we will call group number one is a group that says is numbered among the enemies of God. If you're in this group, I want you to see that you have a a deep and abiding hostility to God. But the good news is that that hostility can end in just a few minutes. That you can walk away from Christ Fellowship today knowing that you are no longer an enemy of God, but you are indeed a friend of God. The second group is a group that is already friends of God. The second group is... is, uh, A group of people who have placed their personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in this group, and that is the vast majority of you, my hope and my prayer is that you would build on the knowledge that you already have. My hope is that your faith would be strengthened today, that you would be better equipped to live the Christian life, that you would uh, go deeper into the reality that is yours in the gospel. Well, over the last few weeks, we have discovered the unbelievable joy of of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen this by way of summary, by way of overview, that the converted person abides in Christ. See, Megan's here this morning, and last week I showed Megan's incredible artwork. We put it on the screen. You remember the slug. With all that residue behind the slug, you remember that? Still trying to figure a way to work that into the illustration. It's awesome. And what does the slug do? The slug, minute by minute. By the way, I saw another one just the other day. I always think of that. I'll always think of that picture now, Megan. What does the slug do? The slug, minute by minute, makes progress, just like the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You recall that that progress is oftentimes slow in the Christian life, but the fact remains that those of us who abide in Christ, those of us who are disciples, those of us who are placing personal faith and trust in Jesus, we will make progress. Today we uncover the rich friendship that exists between the followers of Jesus and God. And our Savior will help us to understand exactly what that friendship entails. And so the question I want to pose to you this morning is this, is what are the distinguishing characteristics of people who are friends of God? There are four very important characteristics that emerge in this passage, the first of which is this, friends of God love people. Friends of God love people. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Once again, Jesus says, and this this is is, uh, right before his crucifixion, he says to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, the disciples were very, very familiar with this commandment. This was nothing new for them. You recall in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you so also you are to love one another by all this people will know that you are my disciples if you do what if you love one another in Matthew chapter 22 verse 39 Jesus says something very similar he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself Luke chapter 6 verse 27 he says I want you to hear Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. I think we can all agree together that it is generally easy to love people you like. It is pretty easy to love people you like. But now Jesus, he he raises the, the bar, if you will, and he says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
As we look at this first characteristic of the friends of God, namely that friends of God love people, I want you to see two distinguishing characteristics here that emerge in the pages of the New Testament. First, I want you to see with me the model of love. The model of love. And the model of love is basically this. Jesus says it in so many words. He says, as I have loved you. Now think about that. It's one thing to love your neighbor. It's another thing to love your neighbor with the same love that Jesus has for you. This love I want you to see that Jesus has for us is a sacrificial love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The love that Jesus has for us, the Bible says, is an enduring love. First Chronicles 16.34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures, how long? Forever and ever and ever. Indeed, the love that Jesus has for His people is a persevering love. For Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this model of love, this sacrificial love, this enduring love, this persevering love is a love that is like none other. And it's the love that Jesus says you are to love your neighbors in the same way that I have loved you. I'm kind of curious, does that make you nervous? Is that a challenge? Is that something that makes you uncomfortable for for me, for you, to actually love not only those who are lovable, but to love our enemies, to love those who hate us with the same love that Jesus has for us? That leads us to the mystery of love. The mystery of love, where we learn this, that Jesus actually commands something that we can't carry out on our own. When Jesus says you are to love one another with the same love that I have for you, recognize that in and of yourself, and this should come as no surprise to any of us who have spent time together over the last few weeks, because we have learned this, without Jesus we can do what? Nothing. Without Jesus we can do nothing. So he says you are to love one another with the same love I have shown you, but this command tells us we can't do it on our own. John 15, 5, Jesus told the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Secondly, I want you to see that only the followers of Jesus, only the followers of Jesus have the ability and the inclination to love as Jesus Christ loved. I want you to know that if you're here this morning and you're an enemy of God, you're in that first group, that you don't have the ability or the inclination to carry out this command. On the other hand, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're in the second group, if you're a friend of God, you do have the ability, you do have the inclination, all because of grace, to love one another. John said it like this in 1 John 3.16, For by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, it is only when we abide in Christ, remember the slug, when we abide in Christ, in his word, in his love, that we shall be able to keep on loving one another. So let me ask this by way of practical application. Are you good at it? Are you loving one another? Or what are the roadblocks that, that get in your way? I can tell you that since my family moved to Whatcom County, this is a very interesting county. Those of you who have never lived outside this county will have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you have moved here from California, you've moved here from Oregon, you've moved here from the East Coast, if you've moved from anywhere, you will know that this is a very unique county. Everyone is very, very busy. Would you agree with that? It's... I don't know if it's, it's uh, the Dutch mentality, the, 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 the commitment to work, 
the strong work ethic, but everyone is really into what they're doing. And that can be a very good thing, can it not? But I think sometimes when we are committed to what we're doing, we forget about the people around us. And so I would challenge you with this. What can you do this week? What can you do this month? What can you do this year to show genuine love and concern for people in your sphere of influence? A book by David Murray entitled A Bundle of Joy. It's actually six books on happiness, Christian happiness. He summarizes it like this. He offers ten love challenges. And these will um, be very quick, and I would encourage you to jot them down. Love challenge number one. Love challenge number one. Commit yourself to praying for a family. Now, many of these you will discover that you you might ask yourself, well, why limit myself to one? Why can't I I do two or five or ten or twenty? I would say the more the better. But many people in Christendom all around the world, they're not doing any of these things. And so imagine what would happen if we commit ourselves to these things. So pray for one family. Focus on the needs for one family for a period of time and watch how God answers prayer. Love challenge number two. Speak to one person. Speak to one person. And what I mean by that is to reach out to someone that you normally wouldn't talk to. That is, someone here at church. That is, someone in the community. Now, I I normally don't stop when I'm driving. When I see something on the side of the road, I normally, I have something else going on. Well, yesterday... I think it's this sermon that was really working on me. There is a, a cyclist, and obviously I have a special love for cyclists, right? And uh, he was on the Van Dyke Road, and he had stopped, and evidently he hadn't heard of smartphones yet because he had this map about this big that he had uh, wadded up into his backpack. He had this map out, and it was about that wide and about that long. And I drove past him, and I, I got about 200 yards, and I thought, I better go back. So I went back. Put the window down. I said, hey, man, I said, can I, can I help you? Can I help you find what you're looking for? And as it turned out, he said, no. He says, I'm just trying to figure out where I'm going. I'm, I'm perfectly fine, perfectly content. That's fine. But that would be an example of just roll down the window and ask, hey, man, can I help you out? And so speak to someone you normally wouldn't talk to. This can also happen at the church, can it not? How many people come to Christ Fellowship and never have someone visit with them? And so I'd encourage you to try that today. Love challenge number three, encourage one person. Think of a person and let them know how much you mean to them. Last week we challenged you to send some birthday cards and birthday gifts to Joan Scales. Yesterday she celebrated her birthday. Would you like to know how that turned out? So Jerrine and I took a a gift over from the church family that Carmel put together. And uh, when we walked in... I instantly noticed, and it was, it was at least 20 cards all set up on the table. And it just it, it made me so happy to see that our dear friend Joan had received such a, a huge response from people here at Christ Fellowship who love her. Love challenge number four, carry one burden. That is to say, reach out to someone who is discouraged or someone who is lonely or someone who is ill. You all heard that uh, Sue Holtrip is in the hospital. She's requesting no visitors at this point. But what a, what a great opportunity to send Sue a card later in the week to give her a call to let her know that you're praying for her. Love challenge number five, visit one person. Very simple. Just reach out. Reach out and encourage someone. Love challenge number six, uh, give one gift. Share your abundance with someone who lacks. Buy, buy someone a book. Buy someone a, a gift card for a Olive Garden or Applebee's or Starbucks. Buy, buy someone some movie passes. You know, one time someone bought me some movie passes. It was the coolest gift. I mean, it's amazing what little things do. But, but do something kind for someone. I love challenge number seven. Forgive one person. If there is someone that is there someone out, that, out there that you have fallen out with, a, a strained relationship, I'd encourage you to make an attempt at reconciliation. Love challenge number eight, uh, welcome one person. 
That is, take the initiative to go out of your way to literally welcome someone into your church, into your home, into your place of business. Love challenge number nine. Share a meal. Share a meal. Once a month, invite someone into your home for a meal. I think this is something that we have... We've, we've lost the art of sharing meals together. I remember in the, in the church that I grew up in, every Sunday evening, back when there was such a thing as Sunday evening services, almost every Sunday evening we would be at someone's house or someone would be, would be at our house. There was a lot of community. There was a lot of communion. There was a lot of fun times, and I, I believe we need to get back to that. Love challenge number 10, phone a friend you've lost contact with. Uh, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I actually did this a few years ago, and my friend literally had no idea who he was talking to. So that was kind of discouraging. But know this, every action that you take may not seem like an awful lot. But if we commit ourselves to doing this on a regular basis, can you imagine what our church family would be like in six months or 12 months as we love one another, the effect I believe on the con- congregation would absolutely be amazing. And so, friends of God love other people. There's a second quality that I want you to see that emerges in verse 14, and that is that friends of God obey Jesus. Friends of God obey Jesus. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends. Now, don't, don't miss the, the, the weightiness of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to his disciples, listen, guys, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so once again in Scripture, we see two kinds of people. There are the, the friends of God and there are the enemies of God. And Jesus makes it very plain how we recognize those different groups. Namely, friends of God obey Jesus. Verse 14, if you look at the little word do, that little word do points to how we behave. In the Greek, it's written in the present tense, which means this, that you are my friends if you do continually what I command you to do. And so Jesus had taught his disciples that spiritual fruit, remember John fifteen eight, was an important evidence of their discipleship. And whenever we talk about spiritual fruit, I want to be extra careful and extra cautious to remind you that good works never merit salvation. That good works are not required in any way, shape, and f- or form for salvation. Rather, we are saved how? By grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But what Jesus reiterates here is this. That good works flow supernaturally as a result of justifying grace. You see, saving faith and obedience are directly linked. They're like chains that are locked together. Saving faith and obedience are directly linked. And this is why the Apostle Paul can speak about the notion of the obedience of faith, which is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Is interesting because in the, the mid-80s, I believe it was 1988, when John MacArthur published his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, it created this firestorm in the Christian world. And then later, his follow-up book entitled Faith Works had a similar effect where people thought that Dr. MacArthur was, was adding good works to the gospel and nothing could be further from the truth. He says this in Faith Works. He says, quote, works are a byproduct of faith, never a means of salvation. He goes on to say that faith works are a consequence of faith, not a component of faith. Close quote. Now, one of the great defenders of the 20th, 21st century, or the 20th century rather, J. Gresham Machen, says this about this subject. He says, quote, Faith involves a change of the whole nature of man. It involves a new hatred of sin and a new hunger and thirst after righteousness. Such a wonderful change is not the work of man. Faith itself is given us by the Spirit of God. It is quite unconceivable, Machen says, that a man should be given this faith in Christ, that he should accept this gift which Christ offers and still go contentedly in sin. 
For the very thing which Christ offers us in salvation from sin, not only salvation from the guilt of sin, but also salvation from the power of sin. The faith that Paul means when he speaks of justification by faith alone is a faith that works. You see, by definition, faith works. By definition, faith produces good works. And so friends of God obey God. There's a third characteristic I want you to see that emerges in verse 15. Jesus says it like this. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Here I want you to see that the friends of God have divine insight. The friends of God have divine insight. Now, we need to travel back roughly 2,000 years to the culture of Jesus and his disciples. Because in Jesus' day, the disciples of a rabbi were also the servants of a rabbi. And if you would pay close attention to verse 15, you see the word servant two times. That word servant comes from the Greek word doulos. And doulos is rightly translated as slave. And so in Jesus' days, the disciples of a rabbi were really, in all reality, the slaves of that rabbi. And it was kind of like this. The, the rabbi would be up here and the slave would be down here. It was the slave who would do the bidding of the rabbi or the teacher. Now Jesus reveals that this relationship that he was initiating with his disciples would no longer be as rabbi to slave. Rather, it would be as friend to friend. Can you imagine if the disciples were paying attention, the, the revolutionary impact this would have had on their lives, that no longer were they the slave in that sense, rather they were the friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says, how wonderful to be the friends of Jesus. Once we were enemies, but now Jesus considered his disciples to be his friends because he had told them everything he had heard from their father. And we see that the friends of God have divine insight. I want to share with you some sources of divine insight. Exactly what is it that we gain by being followers of God? There are three things that surface. First is we, we come to know God through His Word. So let me encourage you to be reading the Word of God. We've heard from this pulpit, from others as well, the importance of spending time in the Word of God. Secondly, we come to know God through prayer. We come to know God through prayer where we develop an intimate relationship with our friend. And then finally, we come to know God as we obey His commandments. As followers of God who obey the commandments of God, we come into greater relationship as we obey our Savior. Now, since we are followers of God, we, we really have a front row seat into the plans and the purposes of God. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever gone... This is a weird question to ask at a Baptist church. 20 years ago, you couldn't have gotten away with it. How many of you go to the movies? Yeah, 20 years ago, I would be like... Right? Have you ever gone to the movies and you got in late and you had to sit in the front row? It, it is horrible. Just horrible. Your neck hurts after 10 minutes. You're like this. And all you can see is right in the center of the screen. Right? It's not a good experience. Well, when I say that we have a front row seat to the plans and the purposes of God because we're the friends of God, it's not that kind of a front row seat. It's not, not the kind of front row seat where you hurt your neck and you can't see anything. Rather, it's the kind of front row seat where our perspective totally changes. It's like the first time you get in a plane and you, you fly over Mount Rainier and you look down and say, I, I had no idea it looked like that. That is absolutely beautiful. Now, when I say that we have a front row seat to ascertain the purposes of God, recognize this. We don't have a comprehensive picture of the plans of God. And by the way, if you ever run into someone who, who claims to have a comprehensive portrait of the plans of God, uh, put your tennis shoes on and run quickly. 
Right? Because the Bible tells us this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than the ways, and your thoughts higher than your thoughts. But this fact remains. As followers of Christ, we do have an inside look. We do have a a front row seat, if you will, to the plans and the purposes of God. Why? Because we are numbered among the friends of God. If you can do this exercise with me, think back to the days when you were not a Christian. For some of you, that was a few months ago or a few years ago. For others of you, it was a long time ago. But in those days whether it was three weeks or three months or three years or 30 years, know this, you were a rebel. You were under the wrath of God. You were a slave to sin. You were an enemy of God. Now he calls you a friend. I'm curious, does this change your perspective? Does this change your your attitude in the Christian life? And does this revolutionize your approach to living the Christian life? Because God is your friend. There's a final thing that emerges in our passage in verse 16. We've seen that friends of God love people. Friends of God obey God. Friends of God have divine insight. But the final thing I want to share with you is this, that friends of God are chosen by God. In verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. I want you to see with me this morning two realities for the disciples. In fact, I want to look at two realities for the disciples and then two realities for each of us in our context today. The first reality for the disciple is this. Jesus chose the disciples. Jesus chose the disciples. If you look at verse 16, the the word that is translated choose comes from a Greek word that means this. You ready? Choose. It means to select or choose. But here's what's really interesting about it. In the Greek, this is written in the middle voice. And here's the significance. And I hope this blows you away. I hope you, you understand the significance of this. When Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, the middle voice means this, that he chose you, speaking to the disciples and every other subsequent disciple, That is you, if you're a follower of Jesus. He chose you by himself and for himself. That is the force of the middle voice of that verb. That he chose the disciples and he chose you by himself and for himself. Now, fill in the blank, if you will. If Jesus had not chosen his disciples, they... If Jesus hadn't chosen his disciples, they... Ready? never, ever would have chosen him. Do you believe that? If Jesus hadn't chosen his disciples, they never would have chosen him. Here is a more crystalline way of sharing that reality. If Jesus had never chosen his disciples, his disciples never would have been his disciples, and these men would have gone to hell. And they would have done it freely. And so Jesus is sovereignly in control of the spiritual destiny of his disciples. Jesus is also in charge now of their spiritual effectiveness. The second thing I want you to see is that he not only chose them, but he appointed their fruitful ministries. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And here's the word, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That word appointed means to to cause or to, to make a deposit. And so each of the disciples that Jesus chose were literally appointed to bear spiritual fruit. You say, how does it relate to me? Look with me finally at two realities for every Christian. If you are a Christ follower, if you are a follower of God, if you are a friend of God, these are two things that I believe it is absolutely crucial for you to know 
and to embrace. And yesterday I, I met a few friends at Starbucks and they uh, were friends that, that attend a free Methodist church outside of the area. What I am going to say right now are things that my Methodist friends would struggle with. These things you may struggle with, but I believe with all my heart these are things that we must embrace. This, this is the, the, the absolute truth from the Word of God. Number one, you, if you're a follower of God, you were chosen by God. You say, what are you, what are you insinuating? I'm saying you were predestined by God. You were elected by God. You remember the force of that verb, to choose, in the middle voice, that he chose you by himself for himself. He chose you by himself for himself. Louis Burkhoff describes predestination in these terms. He says it is that eternal act whereby God, in his sovereign and good pleasure, on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and salvation. Here's how people try to handle this. They say that in eternity past, that God looks down a tunnel of time. Many of you were taught this early in your Christian life. That God looks down the tunnel of time, and on the basis, on the basis of Steve's faith, he chooses Steve. That he looks down the tunnel of time and says, on the basis of Scott Meyer's faith, I, I choose Scott. And let me say as, as humbly and graciously as I can, that there is not a hint of that language in Scripture. God does not look down the tunnel of time. Rather, he chooses his elect unconditionally. Ephesians 1 says it like this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Verse 11, Ephesians 1, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 2 Timothy, two, or 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. He not only chose you in eternity past, He gave you sovereign grace in eternity past. And so that is to say, God chooses His people unconditionally. Romans 9 says it like this, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. God chooses His people unconditionally. God chooses His people sovereignly. And God chooses His people according to His purpose and for his glory. I hear all the time, Pastor, why, why would he do it? A lot of people say, I have no idea. We do know this. God chooses some for his glory. There's a second reality for us as Christians, for us who are friends of God. And that is that God appointed us to bear fruit. God appointed us to bear fruit. And we have... Once again, seen this in previous studies. By this, my Father is glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit, proving yourself to be my disciples. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we've been saved by grace alone through faith alone. Verse 10 says it like this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I understand. I got to thinking this morning. I, I've been teaching and preaching now for just shy of 25 years. Man, I don't feel that old, but I guess I am. But over those 25 years, I have talked to many people who struggle with the doctrine of election and predestination. Know that my heart as a shepherd is to be patient, is to be loving, is to be caring, but to also be bold. That when this reality emerges in the pages of Scripture, that I must teach it, that I must teach it, that I must preach it. And so may I encourage you to join me in what I like to call an exercise of the heart, if you will. It's an exercise of the heart that will have 
a, a massive effect on you if you allow it to. I want you to move, as we talk about paradigm shifts, I want you to move from the paradigm of agitation over election, and that's where many people are. I want you to move from agitation to astonishment. If I'm really honest with you, I can tell you that in the early 80s and the late 80s, I would, oh, at Bible college, I would argue with my buddies. One of my best friends in the whole world, who pastors in the Bay Area, he just, he was patient with me. He was kind with me. He slowly and patiently instructed me. And he loves to remind me from time to time how, how ridiculous I used to think the doctrine of predestination and election was. He loves to bring that up, dirty rat. But he's right. I would fight him. I would get red in the face. And so I understand the arguments. These are arguments I've had at one point as well. But I want you to move, as I have had to move, from agitation to astonishment. And when you move from agitation to astonishment, you will ask a question like this. Why would God choose me? Isn't that the right question to ask? The right question is not, why wouldn't he choose Adolf Hitler? That's not the right question. The right right question is, why would he choose me, a sinner, under the wrath of God, without hope, without God, a slave to sin, shaking my fist in the face of the Savior? Why would he choose me? If you move from agitation to astonishment, you will come to the realization that apart from election, I would go to hell. You will move from a posture, finally, from pride to humility. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not only salvation, but the faith is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may, what? Boast. And so you will stand in a position of astonishment. And whenever... An astonished person stands before the living God. That astonishment always results in outstretched arms and worship. You see, when we are agitated, our hands go down and we stop the process of worshiping. But we move to being astonished and asking God, why would you choose, as John Newton said, a worm like me? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. God, why would you choose a slave trader? That is crazy. That's crazy grace. That's wondrous grace. That's amazing grace. And so what do we know about the friends of God? Friends of God love people. Friends of God obey Jesus. Friends of God have divine insight. And friends of God are chosen by God. I want to ask this morning, are, are you one of his friends? Are you walking with God? Are you rightly related to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? And as I prepared this message, the thought occurred to me that some of the things I've said this morning may have hit you like a ton of bricks. If you have walked in here today and you're in group number one, you're an enemy of God, something might have hit you right where it needs to land. Because you walked in believing that you were a a good person. You walked in believing that you were a a good citizen or a a good dad or a a good husband. That you're a good employee, that you're a, a moral person. You see the value in church. But today you realize that those things all may be true of you, but you're not yet a friend of God. You've been trying As AJ and I were talking a few days ago, you've been trying to climb the ladder to merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. And every person that tries to merit favor in the eyes of a holy God will get to the top of the ladder and realize that he can and will never measure up. It's only by grace through faith that we come to the living God. The Bible says this, seek the Lord. While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God will abundantly pardon. Last week we read these words in Isaiah 55. It says, come, 
Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This morning, I want to invite you to come. I want you to invite you to come and to drink, to come and to eat, to come and receive the forgiveness of sins. I see Christ Fellowship as a, as a great lighthouse in Whatcom County, a place where people can come and hear the gospel of grace and learn what it means to be rightly related with a holy God through the Lord Jesus Christ, where we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Let's pray this morning and prepare our hearts before we uh, observe the Lord's table. Our Father, we thank you that we can be numbered among your friends. God, we thank you for these encouraging words from John chapter 15. And Lord Jesus, once again, you were, you were so uh, patient with your disciples. You're so patient with us. God, I pray that you would drive the reality deep into our, our hearts and our minds that friends of God love people, that friends of God obey Jesus, that they have divine insight, and that finally they have been chosen by you. If there's any struggle with any of these matters, if there's any battle that's taking place on any of these points, may we take it up with you, God, and may you grant peace. May you enable us to embrace your word, to believe your word. God, thank you for accepting us as friends. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin. Rather, we are slaves to righteousness. And now as we come to the table, we remember that the bread represents the body of your son. We remember that the cup uh, points to his blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. And we confess together that uh, it is only when we partake of, of Christ. He is the only one who can satisfy our thirsty souls. So we come this morning out of obedience and out of faith. Enable us to continue to worship you in spirit and truth. Amen.